0: It's so exciting to be here. Now, if you open your Bibles to Revelation 5, that's where we're going to be. And you, were you, you've been in a series on Ephesians? Uh, well, well, you know what? Everything, everything relates to this passage. So whatever series you're in, this relates to it. <laughs> I grew up in a religious tradition where week after week, prominently displayed at the front of the building, was a cross. Only on the crosses that were in the church buildings I was in, there you, you had Jesus hanging. And when I, when I saw it, I remember walking to various buildings feeling different things. Sometimes I'd see Jesus hanging on the cross and I'd just feel really bad. I'd feel really sorry that he had to go through all that. Sometimes I'd look, I'd look up and i think, that is such a... An example of laying down your life, sacrifice. I want to be like that. It kind of motivates me to, you know, I want to do something great for God too, just like Jesus did. I want to do something great for God, and then and then other times I'd I'd get caught up in the the you know why a, an artist chose to portray Jesus a certain way, but then a lot of times I'd just be unaware of it. I mean, it wasn't. Just like today, it wasn't uh, until partway through the meeting that I noticed you even had a cross at the front. And it just kind of blend in with the the stained glass windows and the wooden floors and the wooden pews. It just kind of be there. And I think uh, uh, when it comes to corporate worship, the singing we do together, the gathering we do together, a lot of Christians in our culture go through something like what I went through growing up. We don't quite know what to do with the cross. (laughs) It's like a little bit confused about what it means and think maybe there are deeper things to think about or sing about. And you might be saying, well, certainly not here at King of Grace. I mean, we sing songs about the cross. We hear whole messages on the cross. We get the cross, which is exactly why I want to do this message today, which I'm calling Worshiping and Loving the Lamb of God. One of the greatest temptations for those who are familiar with the cross is to become dull to the cross and what took place there. We become complacent. We become unaffected. We, even professional. It was the theologian David Pryor who said we never move on from the cross only to a more profound understanding of the cross. Now I've been a Christian for 44 years and I found that to be true. But I find that I have to constantly reevaluate where i am in that regard do i believe that that we never move on from the cross jesus being the lamb of god the sacrifice for our sins really we never move on from that we just go into a more profound understanding of that maybe maybe you hear that and you go well i don't know well first let me make it clear when i'm speaking about the word cross i'm not talking about this piece of wood I'm not talking about some icon or a statue. The cross is shorthand. It's a biblical shorthand for who Jesus is and what He did, on the cross, what he accomplished through his death at Calvary, it takes into account who it was on the cross. And so when, when Paul said, "Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ," in Galatians 6:14. What he had in mind was that Jesus, the Son of God, eternally reigning with the Father in glory before anything was created, became a man. Actually, he became a baby. Actually, he entered the world through the birth canal of a woman he created. And he entered into a filthy stable or cave, we're not sure exactly which, and he grew up. And as he grew up, he lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father. He never once sinned, tempted in every way, just as we are, but he never once disobeyed his Father so that when he went to the cross, he could bear the weight of the punishment of the sins of every single person who would ever put their faith in him. He could bear it completely because if he had any sins to die for himself he couldn't do that but he didn't have any sins to die for himself so he could take upon himself the wrath of god as we just sang about earlier and then be raised from the dead to vindicate what he did and then ascend to his father's right hand where he now intercedes for all those who belong to him that's what we mean when we talk about the cross and one day one day Jesus, who hung on that cross, is going to return for His bride. And He's going to make every wrong right. And He's going to reign forever as the King of kings. And we're going to feast with Him for all eternity. It's it's so great! But at the heart, at the center of everything I just described, is the substitutionary death on the cross of Jesus as the sacrificial Lamb of God. So so what I want to talk about this morning is is what does Jesus' sacrifice mean for our worship? What effect should have on us? What does it mean that Jesus is the Lamb of God who, who gave His life upon the cross? Well, rather than trying to answer those questions from my own experiences, we're going to look at the experiences of someone else, the Apostle John. John was a friend of Jesus. John was a disciple of Jesus. He walked with him. He ate with him. He spoke with him. And yet John also experienced the risen and glorified Christ. And he wrote about what he saw and heard in the book of Revelation. And we're going to focus on chapter 5. And what we're going to learn is this. At the heart of God-honoring worship is the exaltation of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. At the heart of God-honoring worship is the exaltation of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. It's the exaltation of Jesus and what he did on the cross. What Jesus did on the cross is not peripheral or optional for our worship. It's at the very heart of our relationship with God. And I think, I'm not telling you anything new. I think many of us know that. Many of us can even share that with others. I'm not sure we always live in the good of it. I know I didn't for years. We can sing all the right things about the cross And fail to understand it and love the one who hung on it. We can can hear messages about the cross. About Jesus being the Lamb of God. And fail to understand what that means for our lives. And live in the good of it. We're going to go to Revelation to find out. Now... The book of Revelation is confusing to many Christians, understandably so. I was just talking with the pastor last night who said, yeah, I'm going to preach on Revelation someday. Not sure when, but not yet. not yet. You know, I mean, it's filled with beasts and living creatures and elders and wars and lightning and thunder and prophecies and visions, you know. It's like Lord of the Rings or X-Men or on steroids. I mean, it's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa what's going on? It, it is a little confusing. And then other Christians think Revelation is an exact description of how the future events are going to work out, and all we have to do is crack the code to understand it. Now, God didn't give us the book of Revelation to confuse us, nor did He give us the book of Revelation to tempt us to predict the future and compare news headlines with the Bible. God gave us the book of Revelation so that we could see the world from his perspective. So that we could see what is happening behind the scenes, both now and in the age to come, and be encouraged by that. So we could know that in the midst of all that's happening, and there's a lot happening in our country right now, God is in control and the end is certain. Guaranteed. We need to remember that. Now, little context. At the beginning of chapter 4, John is taken up through an open door into the throne room of heaven. Let's try and picture that. John is taken up through an open door into the throne room of heaven and he sees God. He beholds God seated on the throne. And as is typical when people in the Bible see God, they don't spend a lot of time describing God because they can't. They describe everything that's going on around Him. And around Him, He hears living creatures constantly crying out. These are the ones who are closest to God. They're crying out, Holy! 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 is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And in response, the 24 elders around are saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things and by Your will they existed and were created. Just the fact that That God created all things, everything, by His will and for His pleasure. And that He rules all things should fill us with awe and wonder and amazement. And we could worship God for eternity for those reasons. But God has more to show John. And He has more to show us. And what, what He wants to show us is in Revelation 5. So... I'm going to read Revelation 5 for us. This is God's word to us. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven. And on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. Amen. And the elders fell down in worship. <laughs> wow. So from chapter 4 to chapter 5, this, the focus of the scene shifts from the one seated on the throne to the lamb. And it might be more accurate to say that the focus doesn't shift, but, but the lamb is added to the picture. Because the one on the throne is still in the picture. And in chapter 5, we see at least three reasons why Jesus and His sacrifice as the Lamb of God is at the the heart of God-honoring worship. First, we see that Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, is the means of our worship. Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, is the means of of our worship go back to the beginning of the chapter chapter 5 and see it talks about the scroll verse 1 in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne was a scroll written within and on the back now the scroll we don't use scrolls today but in that time they're familiar with scrolls but this scroll wasn't an ordinary document it contained the outworking of god's purposes for history And as the seals are broken in the following chapters, God's plan for history unfolds. So the symbolic importance of this scroll is massive. Commentator Greg Beale says, This book is best understood as containing God's plan of judgment and redemption, which has been set in motion by Christ's death and resurrection, but has yet to be completed. And then William Hendrickson adds, the closed scroll indicates the plan of God unrevealed and unexecuted. If that scroll remains sealed, God's purposes are not realized. His plan is not carried out. To open that scroll by breaking the seals means not merely to reveal, but to carry out God's plan. So in other words, if the scroll isn't opened, humanity is doomed. will be unable to worship God because He will be unable to deliver us. The one who opens the scroll has the power to bring about what is going to happen in history for the rest of time. So if the scroll remains closed, if no one can open the scroll, that means history remains directionless as a lot of people think it already is. God's people have no hope of victory. Their enemies will not be defeated. And in the end, what God had planned would not be achieved. So John responds in verse 4. He says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. And we can understand better now why he wept loudly. He knew the significance of opening that scroll. Eternity hangs in the balance as they're looking for someone who's worthy enough to open the scroll. So it says they look in heaven and they don't find anyone, which always seems odd to me. No, no, they can't find anyone in heaven. They look on the earth. They can't find anyone on the earth. So they look under the earth. Maybe there's someone who has died who's, who's able to open the scroll. They don't find anyone under the earth. Maybe they move on to angelic beings and spiritual rulers and authorities. People who have yet to live. They find no one. It's a pretty exhaustive search they've done. But then an elder says to John in verse 5 Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he and he alone can open the scroll. And it's seven seals. Someone has been found worthy enough to open this scroll. It's the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. It's given two names. The Lion of the Tribe of Judah and the Root of David. Now, those don't mean a whole lot to us today. But to the hearers of this document, of this letter originally, it would have had a lot of connotations. Both of those names are connected to Old Testament concepts of power and authority and royalty. So you would picture a military ruler destroying those who oppose God's people. A mighty warrior decked out in armor, towering over his enemies. That's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. So John turns to see the mighty warrior and he sees a lamb. It says in verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is the one who can open the scroll. Now, Jesus is referred to as the lamb 34 times in the New Testament. 29 of those references are in the book of Revelation. This is the primary way that Jesus is referred to in the book of Revelation. It's the Lamb. It's a striking and unusual choice. Commentator J.P. Love says, None but an inspired composer of heavenly visions would ever have thought of it. When earthbound men want symbols of power, they conjure up mighty beasts and birds of prey. Russia elevates the bear, Britain, the lion. France, the tiger, the United States, the spread eagle, all of them ravenous. It is only the kingdom of heaven that would dare to use as its symbol of might not the lion for which John was looking, but the helpless lamb. And at that, a slain lamb. And John goes on to describe the lamb. (laughs) He says that it had seven horns and seven eyes. Now don't go home and try to draw this. That's not not why John puts this in here. And I've I've, I've (laughs) done that for years. I was trying to think, what would that look like? Seven horns and seven eyes. It's theology by pictures. It's alluding to what those mean. Seven is the perfect number. Horns, meant there were symbols of strength in the Old Testament. So this is the one who has perfect and complete strength. Seven eyes means that he sees and knows everything perfectly and completely. That's what he's saying. This lamb is all-powerful and all-knowing, and yet he's been slain. Now true, he's standing, he's now alive, but the marks of being slain still remain. So so what did John see? Was there like a slit across the throat? Was part of the wool stained red? We don't know. But in verse 9, we learn it's because he was slain that he was worthy to take the scroll. Verse 9 says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. Jesus and his work on the cross is our means of seeing God's purposes fulfilled both in history and in our lives. Evil will be crushed and God will have a people who will worship him forever because the lamb, this lamb, was slain. Now, before Jesus came, Hundreds of thousands of lambs had been slain. In the centuries before Christ, Jewish priests would offer up at least 1,093 lambs every year. If you do the math, and how often they were meant to sacrifice lambs, it was 1,093 lambs every year. Now, that's, that's not including the special times. But they could never take away sins. And they surely couldn't ensure that God's purposes for history would be fulfilled. So then Jesus came, the one that John the Baptist called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he offered up a sacrifice that will never be repeated. Never. Never again. Through his once and for all sacrifice on the cross, he entered the heavenly sanctuary to make full atonement for our sins and to tear down the veil that separated us from God. That's why a few chapters later in Revelation 7, we see untold thousands clothed in white robes which represented purity, worshiping God and the Lamb. And this is what they say. In Revelation 7, 14. We read, They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Only in heaven can you wash your robes in red in blood and they come out white but that's what jesus does he makes us righteous in god's eyes because he was slain apart from christ's work on the cross as the lamb of god we would have no means of access to god or his purposes and to have no access means that not only that we can't get close we can't even get in no access. No one was worthy to open the scroll in heaven or on earth or under the earth. No one but the Lamb who was slain. He's the means by which we draw near to God. Through Him and Him alone, God's justice is fully satisfied and we can be forgiven. His work on the cross as the Lamb of God is the means of by which we worship God. Number two, Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, is not only the means of our worship, he's the content of our worship. So it's not only the way we're able to worship God, he's the substance that fills our worship. Revelation song, you've probably heard it, you may sing it. It's a song that has blessed millions all over the world. It's a wonderful combination of lyric and melody that helps us anticipate the time when we'll then all God's people will be standing around the throne and pouring our hearts out in devotion to the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Holy, holy is He. You familiar with that? It's a beautiful, massively popular song. But if I could make one change, and it's not that anybody has asked me to make any changes. But this is what I do. Director of Sovereign Grace Music. I, I get songs all the time that I'm editing. and, do. and I, I mean, It doesn't need to be changed. But if I could make one change, <clears throat> it would be that it spoke more directly to what the cross accomplished. To what happened when Jesus was slain. What it meant. It talks about the lamb who was slain, but it doesn't tell us what it accomplished. The view of Jesus as the Lamb of God becomes more stunning and worship producing when we understand why He died. And this is what the living creatures and the elders around the throne sing. In verse 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed People for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Heavenly worship centers around what Jesus' work on the cross actually accomplished. Jesus didn't die as a mere example or a martyr. He wasn't the unfortunate victim of his circumstances. Oh, it just didn't work out the the way he thought it would. No, he willingly died on the cross to achieve something. He made something happen. And by his blood, this is what what he made happen. He ransomed or purchased or bought people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. He paid a price, his own life, to ransom us to God. But what did he ransom us from? Let's dig a little deeper. The Bible isn't clear what, a ransom is, is a payment. It's a payment made to, to deliver something. But here, this was our condition before he ransomed us. We were under God's judgment and the objects of his wrath. We were condemned under God's law. We were held captive by the devil and slaves to the power of sin. We needed a deliverer. We needed to be ransomed. So how did Jesus' death on the cross ransom us? Well, we're going to turn over to Colossians 2 to find out. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. Because often we think, well, everything came together when Jesus rose from the dead. And it did. But where was the victory? We're going to celebrate you know, the, the resurrection next Sunday. Of course, we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday. Celebrate the resurrection every day. But if the cross didn't do what it was supposed to do, then the resurrection wouldn't mean what it's supposed to mean. So look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did He do that? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And you know when he did that? When he died. Why? How did that happen? How could he triumph over them when he died? Well, when he died, he canceled the record of debt that was against us. He removed the judgment against us. And he did that by receiving the punishment we deserved for all our sins in his own body. He was our substitute. At that point, all our sins were paid for. And when God raised him up from the dead... He was saying, yes, I accept that payment. That is done. It's like when you run your card, your debit card, through the machine at the store, and there's this few seconds when you're waiting to see if there's enough money in there to like, go through, and he goes, approved, yes, yes, so glad. That's what it's like. The money's paid for when you slide it through. But then it says, approved, Yes. Yes, that's how we know those sins were paid for. The resurrection was God's amen to Jesus' full payment of our ransom. But it was in the cross that Jesus triumphed. This is such good news, brothers and sisters. Satan can no longer accuse us or condemn us or heap condemnation on us because Jesus, the Son of God, was condemned in our place. And it wasn't just some of the sins he took. It was all of them. It's great news. By your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Philippians 2, we see another, another affirmation of this it says because jesus humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross that god highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name nothing impresses god the father more than the sacrificial substitutionary death of his own son Nothing should impress us more either. That explains why worship is a response to what God has done and not an attempt to get God to do something. Now certainly when we, when we, come, when we gather as God's people, as the church, we should be expectant. We should be eager to see God move in our midst, work in our hearts. But He has already done something. How often we forget that we can come in here joyful? We can come in here overflowing because of what God has already done. It's amazing. Jesus the Lamb has triumphed. So that's why we sing about what Jesus has done through His work on the cross. Through His death on the cross, Jesus has endured our punishment He's satisfied the wrath of God. He's overcome Satan. He's delivered us from hell. He's justified us before God. He's brought us into God's family. We're now His precious children. He's given us peace with God. He's secured our eternal joy with God, which is why the angels and the elders and the myriads of myriads of creatures in heaven are all saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wisdom and wealth and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing, Which leads us to the third point, and that is this. Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, is not only the means of our worship, he's not only the content of our worship, he is the object of our worship. He is the object of our worship. There are five heavenly songs in these two chapters, Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. And they make it clear that we worship God not only for what Jesus has done, We worship Jesus himself for what he has done. Now, this was a revolutionary thought for the early church. The Jewish scriptures taught that there is only one God who is worthy of worship. And yet we know, because we believe in the Trinity, we believe the Bible teaches the Trinity, that Jesus is God as well. Well, the early Christians would have gone, whoa, whoa. So John never directly calls Jesus God. But this is what he does. He ascribes names and attributes to God and then ascribes those same names and attributes to Jesus, specifically. So both God and the Lamb are the one who was and is and is to come, the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. In Revelation 4.10, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne, God. But then in Revelation 5.8, the elders fall down before the Lamb. And in the last song of Revelation 5, we read, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. We sold our house last year and uh, an appraiser came by to appraise the house and I got in a conversation with him. I said, do, do you go to church anywhere? I said, yeah, I go to Kingdom Hall, which is Jehovah's Witnesses who don't believe that Jesus is God. And so we exchanged a few sentences and then I said, you know what? Let me ask you a question. Look, look, look at this these two verses in uh, Revelation 5. So he went to his Bible and Mm -hmm. says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down in worship. Now it seems to me that what that's saying is that both the one on the throne and the Lamb were receiving worship together. What do you see there? And so he went to another translation. And I said, you know what? It says the same thing in all the translations. You can't like make it say something else. And so finally he just said, well, maybe it wasn't Jesus who was being worshipped. Which was pretty weak. There's no way you can get around it. Jesus is worthy of our worship. Now, Here's the question for us. Is our amazement at the Lamb of God so great that we we can imagine ourselves thanking and worshiping Him forever and ever? Does that seem boring? Do we merely sing and talk about Jesus or do we worship and love Him? Is our love for the Lamb so all-consuming that it overshadows and affects all our other loves? Because John is clear. Jesus is God and worthy of our worship. I mean, the adjectives that are just piled up in these songs are so compelling. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. It's like I just don't have the vocabulary to fully communicate how worthy Jesus is of worship. But in the praise of heaven, the hosts of heaven never lose sight of the fact that Jesus is the Lamb who was slain. Yes, He's triumphant. Yes, He's the conqueror. He's the King. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the ruler of all. He's the bright and morning star. He's the Holy One. The true One. He's the faithful and true witness. But He will always be, even in Heaven, for eternity, the One who died and who came to life. The Lamb who was slain and is now raised from the dead. So He deserves He deserves our unending, loud, joyful, grateful worship. Does Jesus have your loud, unending, joyful, grateful worship? Or does something else? And Even as Christians, we can have other things that vie for that worship. Is it something else that we give our strongest attention to, our clearest thinking to, Our greatest energy and our deepest love to. Our career, our reputation, our family, our hobbies, sports, music, our ministry. Now, I once heard a pastor say, if we love our ministry more than we love our Savior, the Savior will have no part in our ministry. It's true of anything we love more than Jesus. so many times people talk about spirituality. I'm a spiritual person. That's that's a cover for saying, I'm not going to identify the fact that Jesus is the one I worship. It's this broad category which allows us to do whatever we want and doesn't recognize that God has set His Son, Jesus, the Lamb of God, as the one who is the focus of our worship. So this is what this means for us. In our fight against sin, we can look to the Lamb who was slain, who took away all our judgment, all our condemnation, and has freed us from the power of sin. In our battle against discouragement and fear, we can look to the Lamb who was slain, who has conquered And in our suffering and in our pain we can look to the Lamb who one day will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Brothers and sisters, there will come a day when nothing will distract us. Nothing will seem more important. Nothing will seem more fascinating. Nothing will be more amazing than gazing upon the Lamb who is slain. our great High Priest, the spotless Lamb, our Savior. And if it seems impossible to you that that day could ever come, remember that Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain, has opened the scroll. And He's made sure that it can be no other way. Amen. Amen. He is our Confidence. He is our hope. He is our certainty. He is our joy. Jesus Christ is our life. So to the one on the throne and to the Lamb, be all blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Hallelujah. And if you are here today and you don't know Jesus in that way, please talk with someone. Talk with Toby, talk with myself. Talk with someone who can explain to you further why you need Jesus. You need to know Him for who He is. Because only in Him can we find salvation. So Father, we thank You For Your mercy to us, that You have revealed the Lamb to us, Jesus Christ, who is our King, who is our Conqueror, who is our Lord, and who is our Redeemer, who has ransomed us for Your glory so that we might live for You. So that we might live in the power of Your Spirit as we give Him glory, as we give You glory, the triune God, worthy of our praise, our life, our devotion our thoughts and intention. May nothing else rob you and rob you, Jesus, of the glory that you deserve. And each time we sing, may we be conscious of the fact that we are joining the hosts of heaven in giving you the glory and honor and praise that you alone deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I thought it would be appropriate if we close by singing to the lamb who was slain let's stand together